Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and I'd like to welcome you to IDSA's podcast, Coronavirus, What's Happening Now? The purpose of this podcast is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this rapidly evolving outbreak. These podcasts will be produced weekly or as often as necessary. Our aim is to bring in experts from various areas of focus within the field of infectious diseases. Today, I'm joined by members of IDSA's coronavirus expert panel, Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins, Dr. Elisa Choi from Harvard, and Dr. Adil Bhatt of Weill Cornell. All are experts on infectious disease outbreaks at their institutions worldwide. Thank you all so much for being here. Dr. Adalja, I'd like to begin with where the outbreak stands today. How many people are affected globally and how many here in the United States? So right now there are 60,364 people infected globally with this virus. The vast majority in mainland China. In the United States, we have 15 cases currently, uh, as of now with the latest case being added today. Uh, It's really important to remember that we do suspect that there are more cases that just have not been diagnosed because we are only testing individuals who come to healthcare systems and hospitals and not mild cases that may be out in the community with more common cold-like symptoms. The CDC just held a webinar for healthcare systems about preparedness and optimizing the use of N95 respirators. What can you tell us about the guidance from the CDC and how are healthcare systems preparing here in the U.S.? So the CDC just a couple of days ago had a webinar and then actually introduced a new strategy for optimizing the supply of N95 respirators. What that refers to is the fact that we know that N95 respirators can have variable supplies and hospitals may have more or less on hand. And we know that that because infection control guidance for the coronavirus require airborne isolation of patients, they're, they're going to, there's going to be a uh, demand for N95s. And because of that, we really have to figure out how we're going to stretch that supply. And the CDC has released a few uh, important principles in their guidelines to think about how to manage your N95 stock. So some of these principles include minimizing the number of healthcare providers who need to use respiratory perfection through uh, uh, through a- any means you can. So maybe you're cohorting patients, maybe you're having specific individuals that are going to be taking care of the coronavirus patients so that you don't have to keep using new N95s on, on new healthcare workers. Uh, you could use alternatives to N95. So we do have Uh, powered air purifying respirators that could be used instead of N95 respirators. And then there are ways to allow extended use or limited reuse of N95 respirators. So that may mean that a person may keep an N95 and use it on multiple different patients uh, as long as they're storing it and it's still fitting properly and, and working well. And you also want to prioritize the use of N95 respirators for those healthcare workers at highest risk uh, for uh, acquiring uh, infection, meaning those are the individuals who are doing the direct patient care with uh, the patients with the coronavirus. Thank you, Dr. Adalja. The CDC continues to call the immediate risk to the American public low, adding that could change while the WHO puts the global level risk at high. My first question, this one for Dr. Bond, is what is the WHO doing at the international level to respond to this outbreak? So you have rightly pointed out that the immediate risk to the American public is low. While there have been uh, over 60,000 cases that Dr. Adalja pointed out in China, only 15 cases have been reported in the U.S. Nearly all of these patients have had a history of travel to China. So in the absence of recent travel to China or contact with someone who has returned from China, 
the risk does remain low to people in the U.S. I would also like to point out that while the transmissibility of uh, novel coronavirus, and by the way, the new name is COVID-19, the COVID-19 infection seems to be higher than SARS or MERS, the likelihood of dying from it is lower than both SARS or MERS. However, the epidemic is still emerging, so this may change, but so far this seems to be the consensus. WHO has been quite active in terms of their response. I'm a part of a WHO advisory group, and we have been having very active discussions on a nearly daily basis regarding developing tools to study, treat, and respond to this infection. Now, this advisory group consists of scientists, clinicians, researchers, epidemiologists, public health professionals from across the globe. We have updated the clinical care guidelines, which are based on the guidelines we had prepared for MERS a few years ago, and most of those principles still hold. Those guidelines are easily available on the WHO website. Now, WHO has also sent a team to China to help them with the response to this epidemic. They declared this infection a global public health emergency on January 31st, uh, a little over a month after uh, the first cases were reported. WHO also continues to provide information and resources to countries affected by the COVID-19 infection. WHO is coordinating a global response in terms of both containment and development of therapeutic agents. We have learned a lot from the MERS outbreak from a few years ago, and many of those lessons are being applied here and in a much quicker manner than before. Thank you, Dr. Bott. My second question along those same lines goes to you, Dr. Choi, and that is what kind of event might change the assessment that the risk to the American public is low? Thanks, Nadia. So right now we believe that most of the infections are from directly having exposure in the origin country uh, in Hubei province or in Wuhan, China, or for those who acquired infection in the United States, who weren't in that particular uh, part of the world, it was acquired through close contact uh, with someone who recently arrived back from there. That being the confirmed risk right now, there would be a heightened risk to those in the United States if it was determined that there would be other means of spread, um, perhaps um, not through just respiratory transmission or respiratory secretions. And we don't have further information about that at this time. We don't really know if there might be other modes of transmission. Um, the data is not really available and can't be confirmed. For example, would there be transmission from fecal oral route? Or would there potentially be transmission from um, non-person to person spread? For example, uh, fomites on um, surfaces, um, would that potentially be a route of transmission? We don't have evidence at this juncture to know that that is the case at all. But if it became more evident that that was the case, there certainly would be heightened risk of acquisition and infection with COVID-19. And alternatively also, what we don't know right now is whether there is a significant amount of transmissibility of infection during asymptomatic infection, meaning when an individual is potentially infected but isn't having any symptoms. And if that was found to be the case, that could certainly create a higher risk because there would be many more people who might be infected and may not know they're infected because they're not coming to care because they don't have any symptoms who could potentially be transmitting COVID-19 to other individuals. And thirdly, um, at this juncture, we also um, are not seeing 
uh, generational from one person to another rapid spread. Um, if we did start to find that um, an index case would spread COVID-19 to a secondary case, and then that secondary case would be able to rapidly spread to a tertiary case, and then so on, um, that would also heighten the risk. Uh, but at this time, we don't have any evidence of any of those scenarios playing out. Excellent, Dr. Choi. Thank you so much for that. Switching gears just a little bit, the WHO has sent out testing kits to over 150 labs globally. However, clinicians are still reporting difficulties in obtaining these tests. Is there any guidance for clinicians based in resource-limited settings globally who are facing a shortage or lack of diagnostic capabilities? So there is a state of global panic regarding this infection right now. And in such states, rational decision-making often becomes difficult. It is not easy to convince frontline providers to make highly evidence-based decisions at times of such hype. But having said that, we must continue to emphasize common sense decision-making while not minimizing or underestimating the risk to both the public as well as the healthcare workers. We must empathize with the caregivers at the front lines, and we must support them in every possible way. Now, in terms of testing kit availability, the most important advice that I can think of is to use clinical care guidelines and epidemiologic knowledge to determine who to test. If you see a patient with no epidemiologic link to an infected person or an area where the infection is uh, common, then the likelihood of a positive test is very low. So far, reports show that 95 to 98% of the persons infected with COVID-19 have fever. So another thing to look at is the absence of fever, which should be considered in decision-making regarding who to test. We must also remember that influenza and other respiratory viruses, including other coronaviruses, are common causes of influenza-like illness and upper respiratory infections. So exhausting uh, testing kits in persons at extremely low risk of COVID-19 infection will lead to bigger problems if cases start presenting later. So in short, it is a very delicate balance between testing those who you think are at, uh, at a reasonable risk of infection while not missing anyone with atypical symptoms or apparent lack of an epidemiologic link. And remember to use universal precautions in frontline settings like emergency rooms, urgent care centers, and any places where such cases are likely to present. We must ask our providers to be vigilant, ask pertinent questions in history to determine possible exposure, and then test those who might be at risk. So if you use these testing kits a little more judiciously and in accordance with uh, uh, accordance with the clinical care guidelines for, for patients with uh, suspected influenza-like illness, I think we can stretch them uh, much longer uh, over a much longer period of time. Now, Dr. Bott, going along on that same line, is there additional advice for detecting and caring for suspected patients in resource-limited settings? I think one of the most important thing is uh, early identification systems to need to put in place in, in frontline areas like emergency rooms or urgent care centers. If any area sees an uptick of patients with uh, influenza-like illness or symptoms of upper respiratory infections in terms of a cluster, then they need to cohort those patients or, or quarantine that area or separate those patients very quickly and try to test those group of patients quickly to determine what kind of infection those people have. Common sense infection control measures are one of the most important things that we need to uh, implement across all areas of care. 
Dr. Bott, much appreciated. Back to Dr. Choi now. What protections do the travel restrictions and quarantines offer? So these travel restrictions and travel bans are really meant to try and delay the onset of substantial and extensive transmission of the virus. And they're also meant to uh, give some more time so that there can be uh, additional plans put in place um, in terms of infection control. Um, there are some issues related to the travel restrictions, some of which are implementation issues. Uh, there's definitely um, costs that um, can be incurred, some that are uh, less obvious and maybe um, secondary costs and consequences, such as interrupting commerce and services, um, and certainly also impeding on um, the flow of um, general um, individual traffic in areas of business. And those can also lead to some downstream effects in terms of financial repercussions. Um, there are some benefits though, in terms of the travel restrictions in that um, it is an attempt to try and contain uh, more, widespread and more widespread infections, uh, particularly as we still have so many uncertainties that we don't know the answer to with respect to COVID-19. Um, I alluded to earlier asymptomatic infection, we really don't know where things stand with that. And we also don't know beyond respiratory transmission what other modes of transmi transmission there are. So uh, the intent of these um, quarantines, travel restrictions, travel bans is really to try and prevent widespread infection that can become uncontrolled. What are the limitations of such measures, Dr. Choi? So there can be, uh, I think, uh, direct um, limitations, and then there can be um, more unintended consequences. And, and I want to make sure to touch on both of those. So the limitations are that uh, often there isn't really much time or warning um, for state or local public health uh, departments and divisions to really try to manage some of these quarantine travelers. There needs to be um, adequate resources, adequate facilities for quarantining of individuals. And that can present challenges logistically as well as expense to various uh, public health departments. It can be very, very resource intense and complicated, requires a lot of multidisciplinary coordination. And not all public health departments may be staffed up or may have the resources to be able to fully implement some of the um, uh, logistics of what's needed in such restrictions, travel restrictions, travel bans, or quarantines. Dr. Joy, what challenges can they introduce to a public health response? You mentioned to me earlier in the week the presence of xenophobic notions specifically directed towards those of Asian descent. Can you talk to me about that? Yes. Thank you for highlighting that. One aspect of what's currently happening with the travel restrictions, the travel bans, the quarantines, is what I was alluding to earlier as the unintended consequences. Uh, without getting overtly political, I think um, it needs to be acknowledged that we are living in a very politically charged time, um, nationally as well as globally. And I think the official naming of the virus was really a smart move uh, in that it was named not with any link to any geography and not also linked to any particular animal. And I think as I uh, read up on how they came about with that name, it was very intentional specifically to help destigmatize uh, a lot of very alarming uh, racist attitudes and xenophobic 
um, sentiments that arose when the COVID-19 was first arising. Uh, and so I come from the greater Boston area in Massachusetts, and I can say that um, I have seen and also have heard about indirectly from friends and colleagues targeting of individuals of Asian descent just because they appear to be Asian uh, with racist epithets being hurled their way and comments ranging from outright racial slurs to uh, just as derogatory, uh, but perhaps less hateful comments that really allude to um, strange eating habits or unusual cultural practices that may have, quote unquote, led to the coronavirus arising. So all of that, it really needs to be taken in context. Um, and particularly with some of the very stringent measures that the United States has implemented, um, it, it really can have a snowballing effect. Um, you know, currently outside of the mandated quarantine of at least 14 days for those who have been in um, China when they return to the US, the State Department has stopped issuing visas to foreign nationals who have been in China. And so these are very broad-based restrictions and it really can fuel the fire of any sort of sense that if you might be not from the US or if you uh, don't look like you belong in this country, it really just feeds into that, that xenophobic sentiment and it can be quite harmful. Um, and it can have some of the economic consequences that I alluded to earlier, which may not be so evident. So another example of that, um, the past several weeks typically is a really, really busy time of the year for Boston's Chinatown. Um, it's Lunar New Year. There's often uh, days and days of lots of celebrations and festivities and activities. Restaurants are typically packed and overstuffed. Um, but if anything, the opposite has happened. The timing of COVID-19 really coming to light and the way it's being portrayed in the media where it almost seems like it's uh, a scapegoating process with those who may be of East Asian descent uh, being the scapegoats has led to some really devastating consequences with those uh, businesses um, in Chinatown in Boston. And it is all of that unintended consequence of these very stringent measures, uh, which uh, we don't necessarily anticipate right off the bat. It's not to be critical at all of what needs to be done. I think as um, my uh, co-podcast um, panelists have alluded to, this is clearly an epidemic. But I think that uh, the role of these kind of measures, particularly when there is that added dimension of um, potential racism or discrimination or bias or stigma, really does need to be evidence-based and not overreach and not end up um, creating more of uh, that sort of um, um, lack of evidence-based hatred that seems to be out there currently. Thank you, Dr. Choi. This is the last question I'll be posing to you today, doctors. For physicians to respond appropriately to potential infections, is more public information needed, Dr. Adalja, about the location and movements of existing patients and PUIs? I don't think that it's that type of information is actually what's needed. What's needed really is understanding the severity of illness. And that's been alluded to earlier is that we've got this large group of 60,000 people that are infected with it. The vast majority have mild illness. And I think that's what really needs to, to be understood. What is the ratio of mild to severe and fatal illness? Because that really helps us gauge 
how to risk stratify this virus. And there's a, a leading hypothesis is that this is something that has achieved the ability to spread within communities. It's a respiratory virus. And based on that, it's going to be challenging, if not impossible, to contain it. And many countries now need to shift from containment to mitigation, getting our healthcare facilities up to speed, making sure their supply chains are intact, increasing diagnostic testing, increasing uh, efforts to vaccine development, increasing antiviral clinical trials. All of that is where public health efforts really, uh, I, th I think, should be focused rather than trying to track individual patients because that's going to become uh, very hard to do if we get community spread in the United States because it takes up a lot of public health resources that could be better spent. And I think that's the message we need to be giving people is that this may be like a mild pandemic like H1N1 and we need to, to think about those types of act activities versus uh, containment type of strategies which are, are likely to fail. If we need any information, we need evidence-based facts and not um, mass media fueled hysteria because that's where we have run into some of the troubles that we're facing with those unintended consequences and um, really have it be grounded in what we know and not let uh, the the epidemic um, really overtake the science and the medical understanding. And if I may add a little bit to that, uh, Nadia, Please. could I? So I think there is a lot of misinformation being spread via social media and every gathering we go to, uh, whether it's a medical gathering or a social gathering, people are not only asking questions about this, but offering solutions and treatments which are, and remedies which have never been proven anywhere. So the public needs to be very careful in what they read and how they interpret that and how they pass it on. There is a tendency to just forward all the information that people are receiving without vetting that information. I would discourage that, that do not forward things that you have not carefully uh, researched or carefully vetted, uh, because that, may, that false information may actually do more harm than good to people. Yeah, and Nadia, if I may add to what Dr. Butt said, uh, the internet is rife with information, but we need to make sure that the source of that information is actually valid and authentic. And so there are uh, innumerable credible resources from WHO, from CDC, from IDSA directly, and really encouraging the general public, particularly the non-medical public, to recognize where the sources of credi credible and uh, verifiable information is regarding the current COVID-19 epidemic and not to get sucked into um, whatever is out there on the internet because everyone can find something on the internet, but the real value is in understanding what's actually credible and accurate. Great insights from all of our doctors today. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Dr. Amish Adalja, Dr. Elisa Choi, and Dr. Adil Bhatt. For the latest information and resources on the coronavirus outbreak, head to IDSA's website at idsociety.org. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Plus, tune in next week as we welcome another diverse panel of medical experts to discuss the latest developments on the outbreak.